0: Hello, and welcome to PodRocket, the podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free at LogRocket.com. My name is Noel, and with us today is Matthew Drucker. Matthew's the CTO of SoundCloud and former CTO of CNN Digital. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Thank you. A longtime listener, first-time caller. I'm excited to chat. So maybe let's just talk about CNN briefly, what you were doing there, and how that kind of led to SoundCloud.
1: Yeah, great. I went to school at Georgia Tech. I ended up starting working at Turner Broadcasting, which is a fairly large media company here in the United States. And my journey through Turner Broadcasting had about 11 different jobs. And some of the last two were really focused in the digital space. Mm -hmm. And so I was uh, the chief architect for many of our backend systems, but you know, the last two took me to where my current career is now. And so one of them was becoming the CTO over at CNN Digital. And so CNN Digital is pretty well known as a digital property providing news to the web. Most people know the three red letters on air. And taking over the reins of that brand on the digital side was something I hadn't really done before. And so when you step into that role, you don't know what to expect. And all of the years leading up to that, whether it be, again, at Turner, running our ad sales systems, got me to a place where... I was still developing even today, even at SoundCloud, I still develop, but I started at CNN in 2013. And so, you know, from where the web is now to where it was in 2013 is a much different world. So got to CNN Digital. We were right in the middle of starting to investigate how to redo our backend stack, our origin stack, serving stack, uh, using Node. And so this is early Node. Mm -hmm. This is like 06 a lot of issues with serving at the scale that we were serving on. We were also changing our front-end render stack that used to be very H, like XML-based templates into a more dynamic page layout. Sure. So there was a lot there, but Node was key. Um, and this is really where the education started on how to start building sites and brands that scale worldwide at some of the numbers that we were talking about for CNN. Mm. But it was quite a journey to make sure we could get, you know, Node again back in the day to do its thing. We're kind of used to it now, but back then it was not a, well, it wasn't a sure bet.
0: Yeah, that is very like surprising to me. I'm sure most listeners that were like in the development space at the time, I bet if you'd asked them the over under on the end that like CNN Digital was running, being Node, that would have been a pretty long bet for most of them. Were there other big players at the time at the scale that CNN Digital was at like traffic-wise that you knew of that kind of served, I don't know as something to give you some confidence or was it a leap of faith? You know, the New York Times
1: was always somebody we were taking a peek at. Financial Times over in London were folks that we were always looking at. One of the benefits that we have and still had then and continue to have today is our partners in the CDN space. So we were a huge fan of early Fastly. And so Fastly did a lot of things to help us feel more confident to bring that over under, to your point, into a place where I could sleep well at night knowing we made the right decision. Yeah. If you think about push in the way that news is delivered to consumers and fans, you know, you publish a story, which you have to be very quick, because a lot of the metrics in the news business are who's first to page right, right. publish on a breaking news article. And if you think about CNN, there's a lot of value in the breaking news space. So we spent a lot of time making sure that our time to publish was really fast and then we needed fast purge times to make sure worldwide cash purge times to make sure that it was distributed worldwide to the edge in a way that was breaking at the time some of those players like i said the times or both times financial times and new york times were folks that we were always looking at and had a couple of chats with them through some of our partners
0: it makes sense that you'd mentioned CDNs. And I feel like CDNs have always been important, especially at a huge scale. But at the time, it was probably less of a thing that everyone, I don't know, I feel like we're in this era now where a lot of that's taken for granted, like people just pop Cloudflare up in front of their site and they're like, it'll do its thing. It's fine. I don't need to worry about it. But at the time, I feel like that was not the norm at all. So it was a lot of your time, like putting this together and managing this transition was a lot of that at the CDN layer, making sure that was humming. Yeah. So the
1: CDN was definitely some of our conversations, like I said, with our partners There's this concept of things called surrogate keys. So if you change, say an image, you want to purge that image everywhere on every page that it's rendered on. Mm -hmm. These are some of the concepts that, you know, you don't read the book when you're out at a bar, you're trying to figure out how you would do this in real time. We spent a lot of time at a local bar called the Park Bar, even whiteboarding uh, how we would do this. Yes, at the time, our CDN partner, we were figuring out some of this stuff at scale as we went with this new render stack. There was also this other component of the CMS that was also being rewritten. Mm. So CMS is in content management system. So we were reimagining how our content management system went along. And so every piece of the stack in back again in the 2013 days was under investigation. And much Jack Daniels was <laughs> used to figure out how the site should work.
0: Yeah, when you guys were like doing the. CMS transformation. Did you look at other stuff that was out there at the time, like off the shelf? Did you end up writing most of it in-house? How did that look?
1: Yeah. So we had our own in-house CMS. That was the origin story on that was many years before. It was actually an Adobe Air era. Oh, wild. It was early cross-platform back in the day. Again, publishing to an internal couch DB. So we were using couch database. So mm. a lot of different tech, but we kept that in-house CMS for a while. Yeah. This was a couple of years ago when we were building our CMS internally. Over the last few years, I think there's been some other efforts to change the CMS that we had been talking about. But Mm. yeah, to your question, no, we had our in-house CMS that was working really well for these fast publish moments that we had, as well as a very journalistic set of tools that we needed Mm. that weren't in the space of like marketing or Drupal or WordPress. When you think about a CMS, you think about those kind of tools, those don't always lend itself well to news articles that have either carousels or images that are used across the site. And so there was a very specific reason why we had our internal CMS. And again, it was in the journalistic quality that we were going for.
0: I feel like we've seen the rise of like less opinionated, headless management systems in the past yeah. five years. Maybe that's a bit generous.
1: Yeah. So this CMS was headless. Like We were publishing... JSON payloads, that node stack rendered and composited together. So we, we were headless when headless was <laughs> cool. But yeah, so I mean, over the last couple of years, whether it's Contentful or GraphCMS or some other off the shelf CMSs, even Strappy, which is an open source mm-hmm. CMS, they've all started to democratize headless CMSs in a way that those of us that were around before remember what it was to kind of rethink
0: those problems. I think it was an interesting evolution for them because, yeah, it felt early, like the Drupal's and even like WordPress to some extent, like had much more of a, prescription, you know, kind of how they're trying to solve everything, make it as easy as could be. But then we hit this point where like developers weren't always reaching for them because they didn't always fit the domain that well. Right. And I think that's what led to this yeah. headless error. is like devs care about how this data flows through the system. So we want to make it so people can use whatever they want. I think it's maybe a kind of a common story is these things came out and everyone had kind of built something like this pseudo unopinionated thing internally before.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, even some of the blogs that we were writing Back in the day, they were either WordPress, Premiere, or we even had Drupal in-house. You know, at one point, Turner Broadcasting, we probably had a bespoke number in 15 to 20 different types of CMSs. Hmm. Um, Some of them were Drupal, WordPress, Joomla. You name one, you could throw a rock and hit one. Mm -hmm. And there was definitely an effort in the mid 2015s to start reducing that footprint just because of the overhead of managing these. And then through that, Headless CMSs started being the the hammer which you hit that kind of nail with.
0: Right. What did like traffic patterns and stuff, how that stuff change?
1: CNN is a strong video brand as well. Obviously those three red letters are worldwide known. And so we had not only written articles that had text-based content, but also rich photo galleries mm-hmm. and then video to your point. So a lot of live and streaming live video on the web is always a challenge. Mm-hmm and then also a lot of VOD clip. So we would take a video program and and we would have editors cut them up into video clips and those would become assets as well. So we had our own video CMS that also composed a lot or consisted of a lot of metadata. So you could quickly find an article that Larry King may have covered prints. Mm. He may have had prints on in the 90s. And then When Prince passed away, or any other celebrity that he may have interviewed, we quickly would go to those catalogs and get composition pages of video pages that had video assets as well as legacy um, images and then articles. So the composition to those times you talked about. Mm -hmm. was really this evolution in in making CMSs now be article, video, composition engines of a ton of multimedia types, and then sprinkle in. And that scale live events,
0: mm.
1: whether there's any, um, chaos events, whether it be a hurricane or a forest fire, right. we would cover it live. And those would also be routed events through our video player. Cause we had our own custom video player that could have ads
0: injected in it.
1: This very multimedia rich site was born through those years. Mentioned.
0: Gotcha. Was that kind of setup of more video focused content? Like was there unique challenges in like getting the pipeline all configured and smoothed out and working so like the editorial teams could work with stuff where was most of the challenge in serving the customer that was like the internal customer
1: a very similar challenge to the cms that i spoke about is was our video cms and the tooling around creating Mm. snackable video links that were you know four or five minutes and so if you think about the brand where we have a ton of linear people that are serving the broadcast network are also now starting to contribute to our digital space. Mm. There was a lot of work in like figuring out how these assets got cut and edited and then encoded and transcoded into HLS mm. streams that were then put out on a CDN and then streamed at scale to our users. And that was another CDN. Like I mentioned, Fastly, huge partner for us. We also use Akamai, And so when you think about how video is, you said, I think you said it, you know, now it just kind of works. But again, back in the day, when you're trying to do live video for 2 million folks, those are the numbers that the Super Bowl was covering. Our election coverage in 2016 were in those numbers too. Um, And even in 2020, after I would left, it surpassed what it was when I was there. A lot of those challenges we take for granted now.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, and
1: even AWS, but AWS has been able to bring to the table. We were figuring it out on the fly. And in those years that you had mentioned, we had spun up our own Kubernetes stack, even when Kubernetes wasn't like in the 1.0 version, this was, again, in the, I think it was 0.8, so we were running our own kube clusters, managing that and figuring out how to run all of that too.
0: Yeah. But AWS, like the, I don't know the big cloud providers were coming onto the scene, but they definitely weren't as embedded everywhere. It wasn't like the assumption that it is today. You mentioned several times and you you said something um, at the beginning too, where you were still building or coding or something to that effect day to day. Mm -hmm. How was that factored into this? What does that look like now? You've mentioned a lot of tech, like a very wide swath. Are you getting your fingers wet (laughs) everywhere or just like delving deep in a couple areas? Like how do you break up that time?
1: It's one of those things that every person I've worked for over the you know 35 40 years has said you got to quit coding. Because of that, you know, the challenge of managing teams, managing strategy and understanding the business side of this industry, for me it was always how can I do any of those without keeping my hands in the the pie mm-hmm. to be able to help teams make the right decision with some of these technology challenges. The answer to your question is kind of I keep my hands as in it as possible to one, help the team, but there's a little bit of like emotional satisfaction with being able to control my own destiny around building something. Yeah, When you start getting into leadership roles and you're running a team or managing a team and working with a team, you yield some of your control over the outcome. Like you, you get fabulous people to do amazing work. And that is always the case. But every once in a while, and I, you know, I don't think I'm alone in this. You just want to be able to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. So I get true satisfaction out of being able to like help the team do all of those work things, and then also get really down deep and understand, like, you know, how would I build this thing using GraphQL that does X with persistent queries? Right. It's a long-winded answer. My job is to serve the team, mm-hmm. and then there's parts of it that for me is. Like, almost like a hobby to make sure I can I can get it done right.
0: No, totally. I, I don't feel like that's an overly long-winded answer at all. I feel like it's hard to to capture that feeling of like, I need to have my boots on the ground still to like have that empathy. Yeah. I mean, you know,
1: even there, and some of the team uh, will remember, they still give me a hard time for this, even though I don't work with them anymore. There was a holiday one of the years that we couldn't take a holiday because we had to launch our site. And, and what else to launch it other than like January 4th? <laughs> so... <laughs> Perfect day to launch if you got everything in the row, but you know, it's always usually tight. And so we didn't take vacation that holiday. And I say we because we were all in the room together. I couldn't do it without being boots on the ground, not just saying I was there, but being in there. And nice. many of the team members will remember election night where we were testing GraphQL on election night uh, on the homepage. And uh, yeah, we were doing those kind of things because that was fun. <laughs>
0: and we had a good time doing it. Yeah. It does talk about like your traffic numbers on election night, like eclipsing Super Bowl eyes. Yeah, they were close. They were
1: close to Super Bowl. It was in the in the two millions. Page views is usually a currency you hear a lot, which is how many pages get served. And at the end of the day, and this is where like the work that we're doing over in SoundCloud is much different and a really interesting change. But um, when you talk about page views, the CDN is really doing the work for you. Right. Anyone that's been in this space long enough to know that, PageViews is not the currency you should really care about other than if you have ad impressions, but because Fastly or Akamai or, you know, Cloudflare, they'll all do it, even Cloudflare. They'll do it for you. Mm-hmm. Video is a little bit different when you're doing ads. But yeah, some big numbers. we were throwing big numbers on the board.
0: How did you prepare tests for that kind of traffic? You know, making sure everything's working and the thing scales correctly when we go from 10 to 100 or 100 to 1,000 is easy. But how do you test like scaling from a 1,000 to a million?
1: You know, it's funny, and this is where... Sure, you can run artillery scripts against your CDN endpoint. As mm-hmm. long as Akamai is doing their job, yeah, you're going to go from a 1,000 to a million. It's yeah. the its thing. What starts getting challenging is the quick ways that you needed to purge cache. So, updates to the pages. So, if you just had a static page, serving those numbers over time is, is a no brainer. Like you put a long TTL on the page, you just let it get served. And again, as long as Akamai is doing its thing or your CDN partner is doing its thing, you're sleeping well in it. But when you have fast churn on pages, you're purging cash at rates across your site that start giving you pause, that's where you have to start figuring out how do you load test that to your question? So it's twofold. We had long testing strategies and run-ups to the election that pretty much played back what happened in the previous election. And we have systems that were able to like emulate those publishers over time, We're throwing load at it via vendors that help us like simulate worldwide traffic. Mm -hmm. So there were long stretches and, you know, on some of the days leading up to an election, the weekends we would carve out half a weekend and play it back almost in real time. So a lot of these systems grew up at brands, you know, and even like um, I can talk about March Madness because we just here in the United States, we just got done with that and not a well-known thing that uh, Turner Sports and Turner Broadcasting, now Warner Media and Warner Brothers Discovery, they actually serve a lot of that digital traffic. So a very similar, a lot of dry runs, a lot of systems are built to play back at the scale that you'll see in some of these events.
0: As a developer, it makes me like nervous when I see these mediums that are going to have traffic patterns where it's like you're going to have 2,000x traffic for like a day and then everything's going to go back down. It's just terrifying. Yeah, and, you know, and this is where
1: AWS and... and uh, whether it be Fargate or Lambdas come into play where you can elastically scale. But you know, again, back in some of the early days, those weren't around. And so we were right. we were building things for those numbers. And so you would do a lot of testing before that to
0: make sure you're top
1: top part of the water line.
0: Are the traffic patterns and stuff at SoundCloud more of a constant kind of buzz there?
1: Yeah. When I left CNN, I was feeling good. I was like, all right, I, you know, I've done this thing at a brand that's seeing huge numbers and then I got to SoundCloud. I didn't know what I didn't know and that you hear that a lot yeah. in your career. But what I have been surrounded with is just these fabulous people that have gone out of their way to explain some of the things that I thought I knew differently to me. And so serving music is a much different challenge and it is really to your to answers to your question which is what are the traffic patterns and SoundCloud has this distinct and really unique proposition to our fans, which are users upload content, music, and you can find all the new music first on SoundCloud. So, but even before it gets to the other Spotify's or Apple music. So right. everything that's on Spotify or Apple music is also on SoundCloud. Plus we get close to a hundred thousand new tracks a week for uploaded content all around the world. So to your question around the traffic pattern, some of that really depends on the velocity of how new music is created. Anyone can create music. So SoundCloud has democratized the ability to be a creator. And with the tools now, whether it's a, a laptop and a, or some other kind of little higher end mixing station and even DJs, the amount that people are able to listen to, independent of what's released at a label, depends on the willingness of people to contribute their music. And so sometimes, you know, we'll see these huge traffic patterns that new new drops happen, whether it be a DJ drop or an artist drop, and you don't know it's coming. When you think about a brand like March Madness, there's a tentpole event. When you think about a brand like CNN, there are poles events like, you know, State of the Union or some other ones. And then there's breaking news. It has been a much different and super fulfilling space at soundcloud to start thinking around how those traffic patterns and how those systems need different solutions that your CDN partner can't always be like it's not the hammer that you can always use yeah. to solve some of these problems because every stream is usually bespoke to the user because what your listening patterns are and what you like to listen to is much different than what i like
0: to listen mm-hmm. to yeah I don't know if you can disclose this kind of stuff, but I'm curious on like what the distribution is of like listener data in SoundCloud. Like what percentage of listens are the top 1% of SoundCloud artists? Is it pretty skewed that way or is it like flatter than one might expect it to be? Um, Well, so again, it goes back to when those drops happen. And Hmm. so
1: a lot of it is very temporal on who you like to listen to and the velocity that they drop music. But when your favorite artists or creators drop new music, you'll listen to it. But then throughout what I've coined this term and it's probably not the most accurate one, which is between those spaces of drops, then you listen to other label content or other, other creators that are dropping and you may then find them to be interesting and then they rise to the top. So you'll see a lot of like ebbs and flows, but just like things that you start gravitating toward once you gravitate toward it, then you want to like consume as much as you can. And then you may like slow down a little bit and then something else will pop in there As you start getting recommendations and some of this new music, then you'll find the next person you want to go like consume for a day
0: mm-hmm.
1: or a week. It's, it's such a hard question to answer because it's very emotional. Consumption of, of music becomes emotional, even to like what's going on in your life or one's life. Like you can't, you can never gauge those. And I think that's some of the best part of like, how do you figure out how to do tech around that space?
0: Yeah, for sure. You touched on it a little bit about how it feels kind of has more of this like network, social networking feel. And there's like a lot, like many, many many to many instead of one or two to many. It's like, how does that influence your kind of technical decisions and and the the ways you guys have been delivering features? Right, SoundCloud
1: has been around for a very long time. Well-known brand, Um, we have a team in Berlin I get to go every two months and go visit them in berlin i'm like i said i'm here in atlanta nice. we have a team in l.a a team in london and a team in new york mm. but most of the engineers are really in berlin and l.a and but what we did is we acquired a company called museo and this was before i got there that has a really strong talent in machine learning to understand genre mood of music being able to like recommend music like what you'd liked to listen to, but maybe even filter in a little bit diverging music, just to see how far you'll go in those guardrails. has mm-hmm. been some of those experiments in tech that we try to go do is how far away from your normal middle of the lane will you go? And then, oh, you've gone this far. Let's give you more options in that space. And so, you know, like the cone of uncertainty for music recommendation starts growing as you as a listener, it starts getting a little more inquisitive. Mm. It's really in those like machine learning spaces and, you know, machine learning is one of these overused terms lately. but it is really a space where you start trying to figure out how sticky some of those sides of the rails are. And then you now you have a wider cone of music you're listening to. And that's some of the tech. Like I said, SoundCloud has been around for a very long time. So we had our own data center in Amsterdam. We're moving things to the cloud and so how do you rebuild some of this tech in cloud native spaces that's some of the day-to-day i'd mentioned graphql we're bringing graphql to our api team our front-end teams or or all of the teams really are are moving into the graphql space that's a place where i to go back to a previous thing i still get to keep my hands sticky because i get to write a service that does some things in graphql
0: nice so not off the press, this is kind of a strange question, but do you think that now that we're in this era where there is so much either like off the shelf or available to do with minimal configuration in the cloud, that it makes your, or one's job as a CTO or high level leadership in tech, like it makes it more challenging because you have to make so many more decisions on what do we do ourselves versus what do we buy? Where before it was probably much more like there's a few vendors for the three or four things we know we need to buy and that's it.
1: Yes. And when... Some of these tools come up. I used to say it was like comparing gasoline. Like you could go to a gas station, Chevron, and you get the same gas you got at Shell. For the international listeners, those are two domestic or U.S.-based pumping stations. So there was a time where a lot of this stuff had been commoditized. And so you really couldn't make that much of a bad decision. Mm -hmm. Lately, I think either with acquisitions and The cloud providers, the big three, AWS, GCP, and Azure, coming on strong and giving their solutions, it makes it really hard because when we have our own solution, you have to take into account how much it costs to run that both on the technology, like the engine, the compute network and disk that it takes to run it, and then the people that it takes to manage it. A lot of the stuff just becomes a cost benefit analysis to each of the vendors, because if they're all doing the same thing, then it just becomes this negotiation that isn't, that's not always the best part of your job is trying to negotiate. Some of the stuff is a race to the bottom when it comes to the cost. Um, But there, you know, there are definitely differentiators in some of the tech that make them not that. But yeah, it's not always the best part.
0: Yeah. No, it's fun to build things, right? Like we always like Yeah. So, yeah. It's kind of like uh, I'm a Dr.
1: Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in some places where I'm like, I want to go build a thing. And then I'm like, oh, but the other side of me is don't because then somebody's going to have to maintain it. Are you going to get called at night when the thing dies? So, <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of engineers that have been in in the industry for some time, they have that understanding or like they have that pulse on on knowing the potential pitfalls there. What percentage of your kind of time as somebody in like technical leadership, are you chewing on those buy build questions? Is that a pretty good hunkier work anymore?
1: It is. Like I said, I got to SoundCloud about a year ago. And if you recall, we had a lot of our own built systems. I spent a lot of time looking through our stack trying to understand like, okay, is it time to pivot? If it's time to pivot, what is that gonna take? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm here in Atlanta, so on the East Coast of the United States, Berlin is five hours ahead of us. So I usually get up uh, around 5, 5.30, work out, and then get on calls with folks in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And a good chunk of that time is with some of the engineering leaders trying to figure out what is our strategy, whether it be, are we gonna use RDS, and, or Amazon's database service to serve some of our MySQL traffic or are we going to use Mongo? And so I spent a lot of time going through the tech strategy because that informs the vendors that we're going to use or not. Mm -hmm. It informs what we're going to build. And so this is where like staying really close and being able to understand the tech helps how much time is spent. And then also trying to reduce our footprint is key footprint of self-owned and self-run things just because that improves the ability to get new features out to our fans, right? I mean, some of our largest competitor, they have in the 10,000 employee space and our engineering staff is measured in the 250 to 300. So a lot of those decisions are are geared to how do we build things with quality, but um, quickly.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess for listeners who like might want to get into technical leadership, CTO like positions eventually, is that what you recommend? Like the skill they hone, or is there anything you would encourage them to focus on?
1: Everyone's path is different. Like you know, would I encourage somebody to stay scrappy in this? Like to become a CTO, I never could have done a lot of the things I do now without great people. Right. So like. I've had amazing friends at work that I've learned a ton from, but my path was I started with management. And so I've been able to use a lot of the management things, but even like, you know, in eighth grade, I remember we had one computer in our typing lab and, you know, I'd stay after school and learn how to type. Like I coded a Zork game. <laughs> Anyone remember Zork? It was a base. And this was like 1981. This kind of started for me back in like eighth grade. And then the journey was management in college, always stayed close to computers, worked in the computer lab at school, as well as, like I said, working at Turner. And for me, developing and staying close to technologies was a passion that I couldn't get enough of. And so that was my path. Mm -hmm. The other big part of my journey that I've learned is humility. Being humble and understanding and leading with empathy, I think is one of those other things that whether I learned it in school or learned it by not doing it. And then people telling me, you no, I wasn't doing it. I think those are some of the real things that you have to have those skills to lead teams of people that they may not agree with you, but they're going to, they're going to follow yeah. you. And I've been so lucky to be able to like be surrounded by people that schooled me on some of those skills.
0: Nice. Is there anything that you're particularly excited about in the future? Either like, again, super low level, like specific tech that you're into, or like higher level patterns and trends that you're seeing?
1: You know, I've mentioned machine learning's the overused term. Obviously, Chat GPT is on everyone's head. So, you know, well, what we are testing, and, I, you know, again, I have this fabulous canvas at SoundCloud to be able to play with some tech is like generative art for mooted playlists or creators that want to use generative art. Mm-hmm to generate album art. And so like, again, trying to figure out how some of this tech can enrich fans' lives. So in some of the space, we're using some AI, some, you know, whether uh, the blockchain is here to stay, you know, it went through its crypto winter in 21 and 22, but some things around blockchain and web three, I think is really interesting in the music space. If you think about how music is copyrighted and all the royalties that go into music, it's if anyone actually knew how that sausage was made about how royalties are paid out, it is not a pretty sight. And I have a great team of folks that I get to work with that have schooled me on it. But this is a place where I think blockchain technology can help understand the value of a listening experience and then like the composition of an asset and who gets royalties around it. Mm-hmm on the chain is actually really, I think something that we're very interested in. As our conversation has progressed, like there were things that we were doing in 2013 were now are commonplace, right? And it's not a a hard thing. I think now when we look back in 10 years, we're gonna be like, no, that's really easy to do. What are you talking about? But we'll remember the time when it it wasn't as easy and you didn't just look in a book and figure out how this stuff got done.
0: Right, right, yeah. I think that's a perfect note to end on, I think, Matthew. Thank you so much for coming on on Chat me, Matthew. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it.